0: Couldn't take the mark. Oh, he's a light Gary Ampland, look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal, what more can you say? Uh, Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently. This deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi
1: Breed, what a goal, this will wow. be magic! He can't break free of the tackle and Rook rolls it
2: along
3: the line,
1: wow. that is amazing! in comes Doggan once again, Doggan strikes goal as he kicks, eight for a through!
4: Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will really hope and gets up today.
3: Ooh, and again there's a turnover and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home.
4: Get in your park. It's the Cat's Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. We welcome you to the Cat's Whiskers once again. This week, we shine the spotlight on the career of former Geelong champion Gareth Andrews. As Anthony will soon explain, Gareth played 136 games for Geelong and more recently served as club vice president for 15 years. It's fabulous to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms, or on Sport FM in Perth. Let's welcome the panel of Gus Marini, Mark Brunger, and Anthony Petkovic, with Megan Holtz being managed this week. Welcome, Gus. We dissected the loss to Port Adelaide last episode and identified key shortcomings in the performance of some players. Our analysis begs the question: to change or not to change?
3: Thanks, Wes, and um, good day, listeners. And um, obviously, we're coming off a somber loss there to, to Port, and. Um... Whilst well, in, in most circumstances, in, in all the years that have preceded this year, you'd look at changes during this week, but I just feel that it's not a luxury that Geelong have, or any side have, for that matter, uh, to make wholesale changes, and it's simply because of this reason is that the, the second tier football hasn't been played. And normally at this point in time, you'd find that your side might have at least played one final in the VFL and had something to go by. But but the weeks leading up to it, you would have had your narkles and your Simpsons like playing playing bona fide football in the VFL, but instead they're playing scratch matches. And the, the dilemma becomes, if, you, if you're making wholesale changes, it, it does send a sense of panic. Um, even to make one or two changes, what's the risk versus reward? We've got Grime Myers who hasn't seen it for the last couple of weeks. Dalhouse the same. Um, we've got players in that category that you, you could, in, in a normal season, look at dropping those guys and replacing them with the likes of Simpson and Narkel, but, but what are you going to get in return? Because are you going to get a shell-shocked narkel that comes in who hasn't played because he's been injured for most of the season, hasn't played at any level, and expecting to turn it on and give you something that Grind Myers won't? Now, we'll never know. But that, so I just don't think... I'm not here trying to defend poor performance, but what I'm saying is I just don't think they have the luxury to, um, to play players who have been out of, out of the system for so long. Uh, Radaglia, yes. Close, Fogarty. Of course, they've they've been in and out of the side. But if you're replacing a close for a Myers or or a Dellhouse, I mean, really, what are you getting in? What's the risk versus return? That's that's my issue, Wes. And I think they'll stick with the uh, the same twenty two. And if anything, they they may just look at a rucking change and bring Radagalia in for who I don't know. But my my feeling is I think they'll stick with the same the same guys again.
0: The issue is, though, some of the players we're talking about um, have played three relatively poor games in a row. That constitutes being out of form. Is Rowan out of form? I think he is. Is Dalhouse out of form? I think he is. Would it be a risk to stick with out of form players or go with someone who at least offers a a fresh perspective? I want to see Narcon Simpson in the team. I'm a big fan of youth. I'm a big fan of pace. And... um, Geelong got some thinking to do, and I'm not sure which way is the best way to go. But you have some seriously good points there.
2: But the other big burning point is: is will the captain play? I, I for one, think he will play.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. Look, Mark, I don't think the guy goes and gets surgery done straight away, and then and then doesn't play. I think he plays, and he risks it all. And if he, and if someone decides to punch into his finger in the first quarter and he and he can't play so beat. I, th- I don't think Geelong wins without Joel Selwood. I just don't think we do, with with the way Collingwood are up and about. But I see, I see Anthony's point. I totally do. And, you know, we're only going to know, we're only going to be wiser once, this, once the siren goes, the final siren goes, and to see whatever changes have been made have been for the better. But again, like I said, Anthony, the only thing is, it's just we don't have that luxury of yeah. having our players conditioned and, and to play in, in an atmosphere where the, the pace is intensified.
4: There's obviously two sides to consider here. And uh, as we turn the spotlight on Collingwood, Mark, I wonder who you would consider needing to shut down this week against the pies.
2: Firstly, can I send a thank you out to my medical team who managed to uh, stabilize my condition by Monday night after last week's show. Uh, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Um, I think this is a real danger game for the Cats because after watching Collingwood play West Coast last Saturday night in what we all agree was the best game of the, the season so far, there's a few names that really stick out for me and, and oh, it's got question marks about how Geelong will handle it and I'd be interested to to know the thoughts of my colleagues on the panel as to who might handle these players. Uh, Brodie Majercek has been an absolute revelation this year. It's hard to believe he's on the rookie list and I don't think he'll be on the rookie list for much longer. And if Collingwood don't look after him, he may not be on their list for much longer. Um, he uh, is a very, very good set of hands. He's a great kick for goal and very opportunistic. And I think whoever takes him in the back line is going to have their hands well and truly full. Uh, as they will with uh, Jordan Degoe. We all remember what happened the last time Geelong played Collingwood. Uh, and uh, even though he was injured in that game, um, still buried our hopes on a particular day. Taylor Adams is just an absolute gun in the midfield. And and he was probably the match winner the other night with a great smother that actually got the pies across the line. And the other one's the big fella at full forward, Mason Cox, who uh, seems to have revived his form a couple of years ago against Richmond. And I suppose the one good thing is is that maybe that's a good matchup for, for Harry Taylor to take into the team. What do you think, boys?
0: Yeah, definitely Taylor. On um Cox. I think that's a natural matchup for Harry. Um Color Jasny usually takes Degoey, but degoey tore him up last time. So it's a it's a big challenge for Jake, and it's it's one that I, I hope and think he's available and ready to accept. The midfield matchups are is simply a case of who gets the ball first and, and Geelong have got to improve in that area.
3: Mark, I think um, going on from what Anthony's saying, Collagazny worries me. He um yeah, Motlop did a number on him um, last week, and Motlop doesn't play this, the good games as, as regular as what we see. So for him to have a night out, he did it on College Jazzy. To go, he did it on College Jazzy. As- last year, he didn't play. Scott didn't play Stanley in the ruck. I think he's got to get his rucks right this year. Now that would be probably the only reason why you may want to bring in Radagalia to give you some, um, you know, some sort of flexibility, but. I think our friend on the night for Mason Cox is, is going to be the weather because the one thing that that, there's, that they're saying is that, that, that the the Jew that is non-existent in Perth is there in Brisbane. Now, we can't just rely on that, but I think with the way our backline operates, I don't think Mason Cox is going to get a free reign um, as, as he did the other night in those conditions. I think I think the weather's going to play some part of that, but... You know the way our defense has been all year. There's, there's, um, I'm not worried as much as Mason Cox as I am when the ball hits the deck, and you've got guys like Stevenson mm-hmm. and Degoey, and they've got to get those matchups correct. Now, if they haven't, if they go and play college as on um, Degoey again, and the same thing happens, we'll all be crying out, Why on earth would you do that again? And, um, I, I just think it's got to be someone like a Jed Buse, someone like a Mark O'Connor who's got to take in this time, um, and so does
2: and that I mean we, that does that mean that um may may take uh, my check?
3: M- maybe yeah, because he plays tall. So the other thing too, I was I was going to allude to is we don't like tagging, and for some reason we we just we have a soft a soft tag every so often. But I can see someone like a Guthrie going to a Taylor Adams. I think someone in that engine room, and I think Taylor Adams is the first one I'd be going to. And if you cut. The form he's been in. If you cut Taylor Adams to just an honest game, you go a long way to winning it. So correct. I, yeah, I, I, that's sort of where I'd be going with this. And by all means, you've got to play Stanley in the in the ruck. And yep, you know if you want to make way for someone, well, maybe you, you bring Radagalia in there just so for flexibility wise to ha- to t- try and tie Grundy out. But otherwise, there's the sort of matchups I'd be going with.
4: Boys, I'll soon be asking for tips and a margin. But before we do, I want Anthony Petkovic to tell me what Geelong needs to do to avoid the indignity of a straight sets finals exit.
0: I'm sorry, Wes. There is nothing Geelong can do. A straight set's exit awaits. There's an old saying, don't wait for the storm to pass. Get out there and dance in the rain. And Geelong right now are in the eye of the storm and we can't dance. Unless we wholeheartedly embrace the challenge and risks involved, we are doomed. There needs to be honesty, acceptance and action. Disappointingly, the response from Geelong this week has been business as usual. Like the scene in the film Naked Gun Two and a Half where a crowd gathers to watch a fireworks factory explode and burst into multicoloured flames. The club invokes the spirit of Lieutenant Frank Drebin with his move on folks, there's nothing here to see. Instead, Scott of the Antarctic wants to blame lazy journos and umpires who can't bounce the ball. Nothing wrong with the game plan, he says. We're not finals flops, he adds. What would Blighty and Barassi do? It says something when a better analysis of Geelong's paralysis can be found in the letters to the editor section of Monday's Geelong Advertiser. Mr. Jeff Short of Marshall was spot on. Geelong, he says, like the Collingwood sides of the 60s and 70s, have the players to contend for the flag, but not the team or coach to actually win it. Speaking of the Addy, it was lovely to read today that Tommy Hawkins nailed his shots at training from the same spots he missed them last Friday night. Unbelievable. As a former AFL coach said quietly to me last week, the Cats won't win because they have too many players you just cannot Trust.
4: Well, very comprehensive analysis once again, Anthony. Let's go to those margins. Let's begin with you, Mark Brunger. Who's going to win and by how much?
2: Well, uh, I was just uh, when Anthony started mentioning there about the naked gun, I thought it might have been uh, Enrico Palazzo, but uh, obviously uh-huh. not, because um, that's another great pretender, but that's a whole other story. Um, for me, I am going to go for drum roll. Uh, the Cats by four
3: points. Gus Marini. You know, I don't have any love for who um, Wes, <laughs> and um, I'm probably the, the most cynic out, out of the four of us, but if I'm taking my Geelong hat off, I'm going, I'm, look, for Geelong to win, just let me say this, they have to go from the timid hunted to the aggressive hunters, and what we'd love to see in one final is just for once, for us to come out and hunt a team, hunt a team like we did in those days when we were up and coming and and we finally became a great team. Too often, the ball bounces and Geelong just becomes the hunted and the nervous and everyone shakes. Um, Unless that happens, I can just see, I can see Collingwood getting out to a a lead, Geelong pegging it back and eventually losing by 11 points and Chris Scott lamenting on what could have been if we took a couple of chances. So I'm going Collingwood by 11.
0: And Anthony? Uh, Collingwood
4: by 22 And I'm going to tip the Cats by 13 points. Uh, Lucky for some, that number. Well, as mentioned, coming up, it is former Geelong key position player, Gareth Andrews.
0: Gareth Andrews joined the Cats from Geelong College, winning the goal kicking in his first senior season in 1965. With the return from injury of Doug Wade, Gareth was moved to centre-half forward while also spending time on the ball and in the back line across the course of his 136-game career. In 1970, Gareth took an incredible 166 marks for the season on his way to being runner-up in the club best and fairest. In round 17 of that season, Gareth, using his unique kicking style, registered an extraordinary 37 kicks against the Bulldogs at the Western Oval in a losing team. No wonder he needed an overseas holiday the following season and he spent a year away from the game. Crossing to Richmond in 1974 in a straight swap for Rex Hunt, Gareth played 31 games for the Tigers and was a prominent member of their 1974 Premiership side before retiring at the end of the 1975 season. During his post-football career, Gareth has demonstrated as much versatility in his playing days, working in the media, football administration, sales and marketing, real estate, along with the health and fitness industry. In 2011, he established Life Again, a company aiming to inspire and connect men during times of change. Notably, he gave back to the club by serving as vice president of the Geelong Football Club for a decade and a half, enjoying the fruits of his labor with the 2007, 2009 and 2011 premierships. Gareth Andrews, welcome to the
1: Cat's Whiskers. Thanks very much, guys. Nice to join. Gareth, Gareth,
0: I want to talk to you about your days at Geelong College. any of your coaches there tried to change that unique kicking style of yours?
1: You know, that's the one thing I've always reflected on in my life, and I've got a pretty good memory for things that have happened in my life. But for some unknown reason, I, I reckon I must have got worse when I went and played league football. Because, no, seriously, it was just never a, a a matter of uh, you know, my, my kicking was never discussed back in the day of school, my, my school days. So it's 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 so because when you when I even look at footage today, it is just so awful. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I just I, I, I just sort of uh, I shudder when I think about it. So no, it's a uh, uh, it didn't come from my school days. But the reality is, I, I was. I'm a left-handed person, left-sided person. I remember one of the best photos of me kicking my football, was a footy record cover uh, back in the day, had me kicking left foot. And so I'm a very left-sided person, bowl left-handed, right left-handed, bat left-handed, golf left-handed, but I kicked right-footed. And that's why my guiding hand onto the boot was my left hand rather than using my right hand. So that's why people said, you know, I threw the ball because I actually, it was more of a push across the body. So um, that was the awkward nature of it. But, you know, the, the tragedy or the, the thing that really upset me was the reality that nobody even at Geelong tried to help me. Um, um, and, you know, my old teammate, and later my coach, Polly, um, he, just, he just laughed at me. <laughs> uh, but that's another story, Polly and I.
3: Gareth, take us back to those early days when you're walking through the doors of Cadenia Park for the first time as a young fella and the Cats have just come off a, a premiership in recent years, and there's a, it's a star-studded lineup. Tell us what your initial thoughts were, being surrounded by the likes of Polly and others.
1: Well, I guess it's a, it's I because I just loved footy, and uh, the family by that stage just lived up the top of Newtown Hill. Um, for me. It was just, I never ever thought that I wasn't going to go on and play league football and I was going to go and play with Geelong. So uh, that was almost never an issue. Um, But to play alongside those guys and become friends with um, some of them was, uh, and, you know, they were big names back in the day when you weren't having every single game, every minute of every game being televised. But Polly Farmer and Billy Goggin and uh, Wadey and Roy West and Johnny Sharrick, um, Sam Newman, they're all big names at the Geelong foot, in, in league football anyway. And uh, I was very fortunate, I think, uh, coming into a good side in a good era. Gareth, um,
2: apologies if this is not correct, but my spies told me that, that you lived every boyhood footballer's dream and actually kicked the winning goal in your very
1: first game of football. Is that right? Uh, look, I, I actually don't know. I don't know whether it was the first goal, Mark. I think we won five goals to four um, against the Bulldogs. I have never been to the football or played football in worse weather than there was that day. Um, And uh, uh, it possibly could be the winning goal. Um, I played on David Darcy, who died in the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, And uh, he was a terrific player. Um, But it's the most... (laughs) Unmemorable game you could ever imagine for your first game. You couldn't see the ball. You couldn't see the crowd. There's almost no one there. And I, all I can remember is is the is the streamers that used to hang across the where you ran out were just absolutely dripping and hanging down. And when you ran through them, were as broken up as uh, as the as the atmosphere was that day. And
2: which which ground was that at? At, uh, down, down at that...
1: Kedina Park. Kedina Park. Yeah.
4: Gareth, uh, Anthony made reference to your incredible versatility as a player, uh, across the field in various positions. Was there one that you felt particularly comfortable in or that you most enjoyed? Uh,
1: well, I, I came with this, uh, as a full forward. So I won the APS goal kicking two or three times. Um, and, uh, so I came as a full forward, and, and in a way, I was fortunate the way he got his injury in the first year. Uh, I don't feel so bad about the fact that I only kicked 35 goals uh, when I see that Tommy Hawkins uh, um, bag for winning the goal <laughs> kicking this year. And in actual fact, um, Johnny Peck kicked 63 goals in 65. So, uh, and you know, I, I, I was dropped for a game. Um, prior to the finals, and one game prior to the finals, so uh, I was happy with that. But uh, you know, I, I enjoyed playing centre half forward, um, but I got the most kicks, and I had my best year in as, as a ruck rover, um, because I guess if I had any skill other than uh, because I had no skill in kicking or anything, I actually knew how to get the ball, um, and I, I, I if, if, you know, somehow or other, I. I think there's something about reading the ball better than another person. Uh, and, and I'm sure that that's probably what happened, fortunately. But I, uh, when I uh, played down back, I went to, I went to uh, in 74, um, no, 73. Um, I'd been overseas and I was, I'd been back for one year. And then Polly came on the scene and I, I got... You know, I was centre-half back on the last practice match against Richmond down at uh, Barwon Heads of all places. And I played on Roy's Hart and I absolutely killed him. And the next thing I know is I was was on the bench for the first game. Uh, And Polly just, you know, Polly was the cause of me going to play with Richmond because Richmond wanted me and Polly didn't. Um, Which, you know, the thing for Polly, I, I... there was always this sort of thing about I was the white educated bloke, whereas Polly was the bloke who cut his you know worked his way from being in a home, and he just he really focused on his football and he turned himself into a magnificent footballer. Um, and there was something about Polly that he thought you know, well he did really respect my football ability, I don't think. Uh, we, we, we became really good friends, you know, and, it was our last, and that was mainly because of me going over to the West with the footy club when I was on the board, I'd always go and see Polly. And um, it, it, it changed during that time, fortunately.
0: Gareth, I, I want to talk to you about the, the 1967 grand final. The grand yep. final these days is a spectacular event. And I'm sure it was uh, back in 1967. What are your, what are your memories of, of that day and the disappointment of the result, I suppose?
1: I guess uh, I was... Um, it was all a... You know, just in a blear, the whole thing. It was a big crowd, I think probably 115,000 people. Um, and... Interestingly enough, because I used to come down to training and I lived in Melbourne, I lived at uh, University at Queen's College. Um, so uh, I usually joined the club when they came up to Melbourne at uh, whatever ground we went, we were playing at. So on this particular grand final eve, I went down to Geelong, stayed at home with mum and dad and came up in the bus. So it was, the whole thing was just a, almost a new experience for me. Uh, just going to the ground and knowing that you were part of the whole thing was uh, just an amazing buzz of energy. But for me, I didn't respect... Oh, no, I did. I didn't know as much to suspect that, you know, this doesn't come around that easily for anyone. That I was lucky, uh, that I got it when I was 20, uh, and, uh, and and you might never get it again. So to to be able to Get it later on makes up for uh, missing out on 67 because the reality is we had a better team in 1967, uh, and Richmond were just better coached than we were. It was that, was their first of those four premierships. So, a young group of blokes, whereas we had a really mature side and uh, of, of, of championship, Dennis Marshall in that, Peter Walker. In addition, Wayne Kloster, uh, Polinelli, all the guys I've mentioned previously—that's um, just another fistful. They were, they were stars, and Richmond were all just—they, I think, they won the under nineteen premiership or something a couple of years before that. And those names that uh, you know, Hart and um, the like, uh, were playing back then. Probably Michael Green. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's—I um, didn't even mention Green. Um, Dickie Clay, Francis Burke. Yeah, great side. So it was a marvellous experience.
3: Gareth, Anthony mentioned it in the intro, how you won the uh, the goal kicking in 1965. And we know you're really good mates with, with Doug Wade. So is that something that you dine out a lot um, with Doug, that... You've got the bragging rights. So he, he would have had 12 straight leading goal kicker awards at the club. In, but when we look at the record books, there's your name wedged, <laughs> wedged at number four in between what would have been Doug's 12 in a row.
1: Now, Gus, have you ever seen us do our thing? myself?
3: I, I have. Yes.
1: <laughs> so, Wadey is the funniest man alive. Wadey just makes you laugh. Whenever I see Wadey, he just makes me laugh. And so we did the sort of uh, Laurel and Hardy thing. And I was the, he was the idiot and I was the straight man. So I always fed him the line, you know, about that whole deal of, uh, you know, Wadey would say, uh, uh, we won the goal kicking 12 years in a row, are too long? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm really proud that, we're, you know, it's you and me. He said, how many times did you win it, Gareth? And I said, one. And so Wadey, uh, but Wadey just in his, you'd laugh at it wadey just um he's telling that story being part of that story uh, one of the great stories in the uh, when sam and um, wadey post-career uh, had a wholesaling hairdressing business and their story of how they sold the business um, to a group out of queensland they take half an hour to tell it the two of them and I've been with groups of people who everybody is crying because they're just feeding off each other and taking the mickey out of each other. And it's just a fantastic story. And and, and Wade, he's just a brilliant um, storyteller.
2: Great man for sure. Uh, just before I ask my question proper, Gareth, um, Fred Swift, over the line, not over the line. Uh,
1: well, who is it... Uh... Somebody, is it Wadey who said he was sitting, sitting in the second row when he took the mark? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, Freddie Swift was definitely over the line. Oh, yeah. no question about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. It was, uh, that was, it, it was a, uh, you know, that was just one of the, that, that game went right, right down the wire. I think it changed. The lead changed hands seven times in the last quarter and we lost by nine points. Um, it was just a remarkable game for the times finally we'd had goal line technology back in the day.
2: Uh, we're speaking on the Cats Whiskers with former Cat and former Tiger and also former Geelong board member in Gareth Andrews. And Gareth, I just wanted to, to ask you, um, it's a bit of a left field question, but I'm interested in sort of what the attitude was back in the days. But you, know, you mentioned you were a Geelong College boy and you also mentioned that you went to Melbourne Uni uh, as well while you were playing football and to, to be honest, there probably wouldn't have been many in that category back in your time, but would have been a fairly much a, a sort of a, a working man's type of um, environment. And, and and how was that for you? Did you find that a, a different experience or or how, how did that work for you?
1: Uh, it, it, it worked okay for me, whether it worked that well for my, uh, I'm writing the book I'm writing, on, have just done a little bit on that. Um, I, uh, to, to live a university life back in those days and living on campus wasn't a good way to play league football, um, I wouldn't have thought. And uh, I think I played something like six games in my second year. So that was by far my, my worst year. Uh, but, you know, the reality was, and this is, I, I, I would leave on a, I think I trained up at Melbourne once a week. So two two training nights a year, a week. One down at Geelong. My Geelong effort, and if you're in the finals, I'd go down twice a week. Uh, I would catch the the tram down to Flinders Street Station from Queen's College. Uh, then I'd catch the train out to Footscray. And then I'd hike down to Geelong and hope that I'd get somewhere reasonably close to the football ground and Leo O'Brien would come and pick me up for training. So I'd leave Queen's by like 2 o'clock and hope that I'd get to Geelong by five. And in midwinter, it was dark by twenty past five. That was, and that was my training with the team. It was just they were just different days. A lot of what I think about is is how much better a player I might have been. But equally so, might others I was playing I was playing with, if it was more professional today than uh, was certain back then. But you know, but I wouldn't like to live in the style of, in the lifestyle that uh, they have now, where it's all about footy and uh, nothing much more than that. Um, But there are a lot of lot of very successful players these days who are absolutely getting a chance to do a uni degree. Uh, I think they get a hand pass degree at the end and uh, um, and then go on from. And some of them have made terrific money through footy. We made nothing.
4: Gareth, I want to ask you about 1971. That was the year you travelled overseas. And obviously, that was uh, a bit of a punctuation um, point in your, in your career, I suppose. Was that a good move? Uh, firstly, why did you do it? And uh, where did you get to? Which is going to make for interesting
1: listening, I'm sure. But
4: in hindsight, would you have done that
1: again? Yeah, it was, was the best thing, it was the best year of my life. I went with Jeff Hainsworth. We left in October after the 1970 season finished. Uh, we got knocked out of the finals in, in '70. That was our first year in which we did make the finals from 61 to 69, I think. We went by ship to um, the UK and uh, we spent the uh, year there. We bought a van, a Bedford band, and been a couple of young blokes driving around Europe, just going all over. Northern Europe, but oh no, all through Europe, um, and living in a caravan, uh, camping grounds, and all of that. Uh, I actually risked a lot doing that. I know that, um, but I wasn't prepared to not do it. it uh, that's how I looked at it. Whereas, and uh, did it affect my career? Of course, it probably did, uh, but it was something I, I had to do and. Uh, And as I said, I was pleased I did it. Uh, So it was sort of like the two risks I took were taking that year off. And then at the end of 73, deciding I wanted to lead along because I wanted to play in a premiership side. And so for me, both those risks um, paid off uh, as far as my my life and my career are concerned. Just to explore that further,
0: Gareth... um... In the early '70s, pretty lean pickings for Geelong. That great side from the from the '60s that went through the '60s dropped away, mm. and, and a lot of people I talked to around from that era, uh, some put it down to coaching, some put it down to finances, some put it down to really poor recruiting. And I suppose by the time of uh, it came to 1974, you were you were looking for a change, and you went to Richmond. Were <laughs> what do you put down to Geelong's decline in the '70s? What do you put it down to?
1: I I, I think Geelong's decline was really... Um, we were just badly administrated, administered by our board. I mean, Geelong's board back in those days was always split down the centre. You know, there might have been 13 or something on the board and you'd get six to seven votes, you know. Um, it'd be, the voting could be split like that. Um, Sometimes it said that the voting was split between Catholics and Protestants, <laughs> and, uh, and no, seriously, there was yeah. um, there was there was a bit of that down at Geelong, and and in fact, I said it on oh, radio or television once, and I got ripped apart by John Hyde, who <laughs> you know, this was like in two thousand and five, grumpy old the late grumpy old John, who was grumpy at the best of times, but he was just really. <laughs> Yeah, uh, really frustrated that uh, that even was mentioned by me. He said, it wasn't right. You didn't have any. You didn't. There was nothing like that. But there was. It was just, uh, you know, there was there was the twelve full camp and there was the, you know, it was just it was always a bit murky. And, and some of the decision making, I mean some of the decision making even around the time of Billy Goggin being on the board and then being CEO or general manager and uh, there was a lot of funny stuff going on that wouldn't pass any governance check, test in modern day sport <laughs> or modern day business. And your, your expenses, your, your expenses were paid, your, your, drive, your car expenses and the like, or travelling expenses were paid out of the boot of, uh, of uh, I won't mention the secretary's name, but Leo uh, paid it out of the boot.
0: And how did you then end up at Richmond? How did that come about?
1: Oh, uh, it just, I, was, I was actually working in Richmond at the time, um, Tony, and uh, I, I knew through, I would have lunch once a week at Graham Richmond's pub, and I had a couple of good mates there, um, Barry Richardson and M- Michael Green, who are still great mates of mine. Uh, Michael Green's the chairman of my foundation, life again. And uh, so it was an easy uh, coming together. So I attempted through the summer, of 73 to get to Richmond and by the start of 74 that, you know, nothing had occurred and uh, I just, you know, I proceeded to play with Geelong and I did pretty well in the first six games. And then that, that story that, you know, Geelong came to Richmond, Richmond came to me on the Monday night and rang me and said that Geelong have uh, they've they've met Geelong in Werribee (laughs) halfway. (laughs) Halfway. (laughs) And, they've agreed and uh, Rex Hunt's agreed to go to Geelong and you're going to Richmond and there was no money exchange and uh, boom, you'll be playing with the Tigers on Saturday. Um, What do you think about that? I said, well, wait on. Um, The season's well underway. Uh, um, I I better give me a bit of time to think about it. I've got a couple of days. uh, This was Graham Richmond. He said, you've got two hours. (laughs) So I immediately rang my family and Barry Richardson and they've all said, yeah, 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 go for it. And uh, it was only later on that I found it that Graham Richmond had already given the story to um, Alf Brown, and it was going to appear in the Herald the next day. So were, that's why he wanted it done in two hours. Oh, yeah. But so that that previous week, you know, as the story goes, I played on Arnold Brightus uh, down at Tullong when we beat North Melbourne, and uh, and I played on Arnold Brightus the next week at Arden Street <laughs> ten and a half back, and alongside me I had you know. Kevin Morris and uh, Dickie Clay behind me, and Francis Burke. So it was just a, it was a, a a great time for me. And as somebody said to me recently, you, you know, you realise you played North Melbourne five times that year. Uh, you got you know in the, the finals and everything. So yeah, no, it was uh, pretty exciting.
3: And just following on Gareth, um, from your time at Richmond, when you finally got there, what did you notice? was the main difference in culture between the two clubs? Was there a lot of difference? Was there hardly any difference? Was there something just stood out
1: for you? Gus, uh, you know, the, the big difference was one club was really tightly knit. Richmond were really, they'd won the previous flag. They'd been the champion team of the era. And they were just, they, they never ever thought of doing anything but winning. And I came probably about four or five weeks after the Essendon Fracker, and uh, and and so that had everything thrown at by everyone in football, just calling them thugs, and uh, and uh, and so that just made them even stronger, and it was just one of the most enjoyable experiences of my football life was just the the. The the, the the wanting to win, no question about the fact that we're going to win. Uh, and I always went, one of the things that I always talked about when I went back to Geelong with working with Frank was that, uh, you know, I would just tell Frank about that era and how tightly knit they were. And uh, there were just things even happening in the Geelong club as soon as I hit it in late 98, 99 that you could just say, oh, geez, you can't be doing that anymore. Um, and uh, But I would, you know, I, I, I questioned one day I came down to Geelong and the, I saw the back of the stand. There was a big marketing sign that said the Country Cats. And and, and and I was working for the ABC and and I couldn't believe it. You know, the Country Cats just were playing in the big league. You know, this, this, we're a national team and the national, uh, it's going to be, you know, it wasn't a national competition at the day but the whole of the country was following it. We weren't the country cats. If we, if we were gonna be the country cats, we're not, never gonna be Collingwood or Richmond or you know, those sort of hard-edged footy clubs. We were just nice guys. And of course, out of all of that came the handbags. Do you believe, Gareth, that
3: um, that was sort of the problem with, with Geelong at the time was there was a lot of hero-worshipping being a, a one-town club. Whereas when you're in Richmond and the other Melbourne clubs, they're you know, they were, they were a mixed bag walking through the streets of Melbourne. Whereas at Geelong, hmm. you're all identified as soon as you got into Malop Street. So do you feel that when you came back to the club, you, you sort of could then say, okay, I, I know what the difference is now. There's, that we're going to get um, patted on the back regardless being, being in this environment. And this is what we need to change.
1: I, I think one of the things that had changed, Gus, was that a lot of players had start, started living out of Geelong. Uh, and that was when that sort of they started going to talky and Jan, Jack, and the like, and it sort of continued to do that. To I think a, it was a lot closer today than it seemed to be back in those days. So they, um, it, it took them out of the limelight, and uh, so uh, that had already started. But interestingly enough, back back when I was there, we at the beginning, we were just a club that other players didn't want to go to from clubs. And and the first guy we bagged was Brad Ottens. And he sort of break, broke the duck for us because everyone we had a crack at, we just wouldn't get, because we didn't have, we had a bit of a loser's image about us. We played in six, you know, we'd won, we'd played in the grand finals, but we were coming to the end of our era and there was nothing really attractive about playing with Geelong. I, I, I hate to say, um, and it, 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 we should have been respected more than that. The, the respect came by um, by the leadership provided by Frank Costa. There's no question about that. Um, and then Cookie was just a, a a great ally to have alongside him. Uh, and um, you know, it, it really. That's where it, um, and and one of the things that Frank was, Frank was never, because we had debt and all of that, um, Frank had lived with that through his businesses all his life. And he didn't let that, um, you know, get in his road. And uh, it was, I remember one, but right in our first year was at the time when we were starting, maybe the second year, we were worried about the debt in the first, and just getting a team on the side ground. And we, um, we almost let, lost Ben Graham. He was wanting to leave. And our captain left, of course, at the end of 98. I've never spoken to him since, <laughs> um, leave Colbert, because I just, I thought he did a dog of a thing.
2: You he know, occasionally gets a mention on the show, Gareth, not very often.
1: Oh, yeah. Like he was, we so looked after him in 98. Uh, we, we, he was captain, we respected him and has been captain the whole season. He'd missed the whole season. He was injured in the last practice match, I think. And, uh, you know, we really looked after him. On the last round of the year, he came down to Geelong with his manager, Ronnie Joseph. Ron's a nice guy living down lawn these days. And just said, I, I want out. And, uh, and this was even... He, he called a meeting with, you know, Frank and Cookie, like, even on a game day. And uh, he wanted to meet with the board, like, or, or the key players at 12 o'clock and uh, demand that he gets a clearance because, of course, Ronnie had set him up to go to North Melbourne, albeit Ronnie was acting as a manager and wasn't working with uh, North still in the, that period of time. Uh, but Frank Frank was the man. Um, and Frank, uh, one of the loveliest things was when we did the deal with the bank in 90, 2002 or something like that, what would have been Gus? when we... Cut off the uh, Westpac, and went with Bendigo Bank. So we 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 had we had debt of six million, and uh, and Westpac Bank was just sick of, just they the Geelong branch of Westpac was just petrified <laughs> that Geelong was going to go under. So we came up to them with three million that we were getting from Bendigo Bank, and said, you know, we'll give fifty cents in the dollar. Well, I reckon the I reckon they were, copying, they were popping champagne corks at the Westpac Bank. <laughs> so we, we but uh, and it was only when uh, when the deal was done with Bendigo Bank and Adam Toscothic was a great player in that deal, um, we suddenly realised they wanted they wanted uh, personal guarantees by the directors. <laughs> Wady and I looked at each other. <laughs> we said, "What?" <laughs> and... And, and we wouldn't sign the we wouldn't sign the deal lady, herself, uh, as the, the guarantor clauses until Elaine Bender and Frank had signed it because <laughs> we knew we were out of the woods by then we were going to be okay. The <laughs> uh,
2: oh, lovely so, stories
1: out of that. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, Gareth. Oh, uh, for those that, that may not know me too well, as much as I love football, I'm also equally a media junkie in the, in the seventies and the eighties growing up, uh, I was a huge fan of, you know, Peter Landy and Lou Richards and World of Sport on a on a Sunday morning. But but you were also part of a bit of an institution that I used to enjoy late in the Saturday night too, called The Winners, when you worked for the ABC and and really, you worked with some of the great names of, of football callers. Ian Cleland, Doug Haywood, Tim Lane, the late Drew Morfitt. Tell us a little
1: bit about your time at the Winners and
2: how enjoyable it was.
1: Yeah, well, Mark, the, the, actually, that wasn't the Winners. that they, they were the footy shows. So, the Winners was the, the one-hour package. But mm-hmm. the, the, the other footy shows were the panel. And we we go from radio on the Saturday morning to after the game on a Saturday night, and then we became a Friday night um, group. You know, various times on the Friday night, we had um, Lee Matthews as a panellist for a while, uh, um, Barass as a panellist for a while, and uh, they were just fabulous days, and I regarded my team of teammates at the ABC, where I spent a decade with them, as important to my, as my teammates in footy itself. Because we came from different clubs, different eras. Uh, we'd always meet after the game, or back at the studios, there'd always be a couple of dozen uh, bottles after, you, know, you know, coldies there for us. And we, we would chat away, and they were just, a, uh, just an eclectic, interesting group of guys. The funniest one was always when we did the, the Friday night shows if you can recall i think there must have been 2 or 3 years we did a friday night show it would be on 10 1030 and we would do that we would meet for lunch down in uh, down in glen huntley road and go to a little italian joint and we there was a bo- there was a bottle shop about two doors down down from it so you bring your own grog barassi came in every single time he bought he was able to buy a bottle of red for $2 back then and we could never find where it was, but he came in with a $2 bottle of bread and we would proceed to just drink for two hours because we had to be back in the studio doing this in front of the cameras at three. So we get back to the studio. Our faces were so flushed that they, they had to double the makeup on us. So was, you know, and, and we would sit in there and we wanted to, you know, have a lecture in the show. And <laughs> we would just... And and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and it was and it was a quite a fun show because we were all so relaxed. But the worst, it was a total pre-record. One day, there had been a massive thing on happened on a Friday afternoon, the biggest news, breaking news in football at the time. And I can't remember what it was. It might have been when... What's his name um, was going to play without a contract or whatever against uh, Attenkiller or or something like that it was the biggest news story, and then on we came at ten o'clock and you know <laughs> it wasn't even mentioned and uh, it was almost unwatchable all tele- television at the time because of that, uh, and but there were, were nice times with those ABC boys. You did you did some commentary with them though too, didn't you? you oh yeah yeah yeah, the games, did. Yes. yeah I. So um my the Saturday back in those days um would involve A going on the footage show panel show on radio at eleven o'clock in the morning and then heading off to the ground you were going to. Uh and uh wherever that ground was, um you would commentate there and then from that ground you would then so for about well six of those years um yeah, I was, I was a bag man for a la, la, the last couple of years. But for I was even calling on radio or television um, alongside, you know, uh, Doug Haywood and um, you know, some terrific... Um, Doug Bigelow was always a special comments man. And uh, sadly, all of those, uh, most of the guys then, when you even look at Drew Morford, they're all dead. Um, Cleolo... Uh, but they were just a terrific bunch of people. And then you'd come back to the studios that night and do the, you know, the television show and then I'd go on and do the winners. And it was a bloody long day. Um, but, you know, it was, uh, there were some lots of funny incidents and uh, I haven't got time to mention them. Read the book. <laughs> yeah. The only problem was,
0: that. the ABC commentary team couldn't tell the difference between Mark Boz, Mark Yates and numerous other players. They would. Drive me nuts calling the wrong players the wrong names.
1: Uh, the worst person at doing that... Uh, who was the worst person at doing that? Oh, Jack Dyer was the worst person at doing that. Kevin Bartlett would have 85 kicks every time Richmond played. <laughs> uh, one of the things is that... Uh, one of the things that we were taught at the ABC and very carefully told you had to do it was that people are all watching... Well, on, on television... People are watching the game, and they've got eyes. Don't try to, um, you know, nominate who players are, um, but don't give them a running commentary of what they're already looking at. Uh, and 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 so it was a, you 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 know you called it in a in a in a proper way. Um, I've never, Tony, this is the first time I've heard, heard anyone comment about how bad we were uh, in terms of picking names or numbers or whatever. Uh, but you know, the technology, even then, if you, you, you didn't have anything good going for you when you're looking at something with you know um, old binoculars on the, the far side of the ground which had no lighting or anything, that's my excuse anyway.
2: All all I'd, all I'd say is I've only ever called one game of football Gareth on the radio, and I will never, ever, ever, ever do it again. <laughs>
1: no, no. It was, uh, um, it's always a, a bit of an experience.
4: Gareth, we know that there's uh, an exciting project underway for you, and that is uh, your memoirs, which I'm not sure if you've got a book titled yet, but I believe it's a a bit of a work in progress, which is fantastic to hear. And I dare say a fair portion of that book will be taken up with your explanation of life again. Uh, The company that you devised to inspire and connect men during times of change. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience that you obviously was Quite life-changing.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I started... Uh, the story of life, again, comes after I had a um, clinical depression in 2001. Uh, just after, you know, two years into my time at Geelong, that probably gave me the depression. And, uh, and, and it was just then that uh, I realised, here was I, I was 55. What am I now? 73. And I was really struggling. Uh, and I'd struggled for a long time and, um, and, and, and subsequently it, and I, I would tell the story of my depression and then what my depression uh, – but I, I started I, – I, I founded life again on the basis it was all about not getting depressed. It was all about recognising the hard I'd been going down that path for 15, 20 years, you know, not feel, feeling fulfilled, feeling lost and all of that, which are normal life sort of issues. And so, and it all part. So part of that story, and I've done a massive amount of write, um, writing on it, speaking at functions on men going through difficult times, and how you can change these difficult times. And I've sort of, and for me, it was just a. It gave me a real different purpose and a different focus, and it's something I've continued with happily since then. Whereas one of the interesting parts about it all is six years ago was when we started taking guys to the outback uh, because it was one way for men to get away, be away from their cities, their jobs, whatever they were doing and go and live with the outback, live with Aboriginals, um, sit around campfires without their technology. And it's just become a powerful story. And it's one of the big things that we still um, do um, every every winter. Um, This year, of course, we couldn't do anything, but... uh, uh, no, I've been proud of what we've been able to achieve. Well, Gareth, on behalf of the team here at the Cats Whiskers, thank you very much for
0: sharing your uh, football journey with us. Um, you had a great career with the Cats. Uh, more importantly, um, giving back to the club by serving on the committee uh, so, for so long and for so successfully, bring Geelong into the modern age and, of course, the work that you've done with life again post-football uh, has been uh, certainly
1: a pleasure to hear about. Um, thanks for your involvement tonight. Thanks very much. It's been really enjoyable for me to meet that, or to just sit down with true Geelong supporters uh, and just look at the history because uh, it's a it's a it's a great club and uh, the memories from our times with with Geelong and following Geelong are just something we can all we're we're part of a team too.
4: This podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms along with being heard throughout Perth on Spot FM 91.3. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you can join us again next week.